from the Western Riverside Council of Governments. I'm Rachel Singer, and this is CODcast. The future is rarely a clear picture. It's often ambiguous and difficult to plan for. Yet, even still, understanding the future is essential and can help strategically orient an organization for long-term success. So, for the Western Riverside County, what does the future hold? And how can governments prepare and strategically plan for future innovation and change? Today, we welcome to the podcast futurist Mark Cafano, who is also the featured speaker at this year's Future of Cities Symposium. So, Mark, thank you so much for being here with us today. Well, thank you so much. I'm very excited. Good. So tell me a little bit about yourself. How long have you lived in Southern California? So I've lived uh, in California three separate times, I think a total of about 30 years. The first time was when I was three years of age, mm-hmm. and I had an opportunity to live in San Diego, just an amazing city, very relaxed uh, coastal community, and none of the population it had today. Uh, a wonderful and lots of avocado groves, lots of orange mm-hmm. trees. Mm-hmm. The second time was actually, again, San Diego. I decided, to, after moving with my folks out of the Southern California area, to come back on my own. I was an opportunity to live on my own, be uh, independent, and really learn what California had to offer. And the last time uh, was about 20 years ago when I moved back to uh, Orange County. Mm-hmm. So I've sort of been in and out of uh, California maybe three times in 30 years. Okay, so with that perspective then, what are some of your most favorite things and least favorite things about Southern California? Well, for me, number one, I love the sunshine. Uh, it's hard not to like that. Yeah. <laughs> and the second thing is I think that uh, it's a place where you have a lot of diversity. And mm-hmm. so every time I turn around and meeting somebody from a different place, it seems like almost no one is actually from California. <laughs> so I love the diversity and I love the sunshine. Uh, and I, I think the other thing I really like is I like how progressive it is. So with all the wealth that's in Southern California, a lot of times we get to see things here first that we wouldn't see other places. Mm-hmm. And how about what's your least favorite thing? Well, certainly population has been a challenge. Uh, <laughs> pollution is certainly a concern. I, I, I remember learning in WR Cog that we have some of the worst uh, uh, air quality in, in the world, mm-hmm. which is really concerning if you're here and you have kids. And then the other thing is I think that we, um, we have to do a little bit better in terms of making sure that we are open to new faces, new ideas, new ways of thinking about things. Uh, Southern California is going to only grow, and as it gets uh, more and more dense, we're going to have to make sure that we're welcoming to everyone. So, Mark, you are a futurist. So, can you just like break that down? What is a futurist? What does that mean? Well, it's funny because the term futurist has been around for maybe 60 or 70 years in regular usage, uh-huh. but the concept of a futurist has been around for thousands of years. Kings used to have their seers, their uh, court. Uh, appointed folks to peer into the future and we've had crystal ball readers and we've had uh, (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, bookies that uh, predict who's going to win the Super Bowl. So the concept of predicting the future is something that's gone under a number of different terms but from a business perspective a futurist is someone that typically looks out somewhere between let's just say five and fifty years with a core goal of trying to understand and sometimes predict what's going to happen and uh, uh, a futurist in theory would be different from somebody who just has an opinion because they would have a methodology and they would also probably be selling their services. 
So uh, that's what I think a futurist is. Yeah, definitely. So with that, then how and why, what was the motivation behind you becoming a futurist? Oh boy, that's a really interesting question. Uh, It starts with this basic belief that part of what you want to do is always remember that the future isn't really a thing. Uh, The future is actually just an imagination. So the future doesn't actually exist until it becomes real, and then it's not the future anymore. (laughs) And as I started to watch that process unfold, I thought about my future, and I thought about my son's future. I have a 17-year-old, and it became very apparent to me that I could no longer predict his future using the data that I had based upon my life. And uh, when I started to think about how to be a good dad, I realized I just had to start to do research. So before I ever did it as a career, I started to be concerned about it just from my son's perspective. And the more and more I dug, wow, I just found out that there was so much I didn't know. And that's how it is I got interested in being a futurist. And it uh, sort of hooked me hook, line, and sinker. (laughs) So in regards to the how aspect, um, so are you looking at past data and past patterns and then projecting them onto the future? Or what is that process? That is a great question. In fact, a lot of people don't really contemplate that to understand the future, Uh, you actually have to look backwards because Mm -hmm. we're concerning ourselves with two things. The first of which is what has happened and what is likely to happen. Mm -hmm. And in most cases, there's some amount of trend analysis. Now, what will also sometimes happen is things will come out of left field. Mm -hmm. And if you have a new development or you have an earthquake or you have, uh, you know, something that no one could have predicted, then it can change the future very dramatically. But the best futurists are sort of able to blend what was, what is, and come up with some sort of concept of what might be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, thanks for answering that. That's really interesting. So bringing it more towards like the, an organization's perspective, what value does a futurist bring to an organization, as you've been saying? Uh, another great question. One of the things we want to sort of remind ourselves about is this uh, uh, issue about having to deal with change. And I think you'll be asking me some questions about this in the not too distant uh, future, but change is something that's happening uh, more and more. And because it's happening more and more, uh, businesses have to sort of imagine that what they did yesterday, what they did uh, 10 years ago, may not be directly applicable. And you can't hardly read the, the news today without sort of hearing about the affairs of a company or otherwise. So futurists are very important to uh, companies, and they've been around for a while in different sort of uh, frameworks, as a tool for predicting the environment that a company might have to operate in, Hmm. predicting the opportunities that a company might want to capitalize on, and predicting the threats uh, or the challenges to business uh, that a company might face. And that doesn't just the companies, it really could be any organization. Definitely. What I heard you just say, which was really insightful, a futurist it has insight to the environment to which an organization might have to operate in and to the opportunities and threats that that future environment could pose to the organization. So it sounds like really strategically orienting an organization to be able to best to be suited for a future scenario. Is that correct? I think it's pretty pretty close, yeah. So um, zeroing more in on the Inland Empire area and just our local community, um, can you share a little bit about what um, your efforts have looked like out here in our area? Oh, so you're perhaps referring to the Innovation Week. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a subject that was both near and dear to my heart and something very exciting. I, um, as a futurist, have a, a desire to be able to help people not just understand the future, but take action on it and have their lives, their companies uh, be better. And that means that in order to do that, 
we need to have some sort of toolkit. And from my vantage point, the toolkit for understanding and dealing with the future in a more proactive way is oftentimes innovation. And so uh, I've created a series of events this year in 2019, uh, of which one of them is in the Inland Empire, that's called an Innovation Week. So in October of 2019, I think it's from the 7th through the 11th of October, mm -hmm. we're going to be having an Innovation Week here. Mm -hmm. And what we're really looking for is we're looking for those people and those companies and those uh, universities and anyone who really sort of says, I'm an innovator, to number one, be able to be aware that they're not alone, two, to be able to find each other, and three, to start building teams to work on some of the many both opportunities and challenges that, as you know, uh, are here in the Inland Empire. Mm -hmm. And how would someone, is it open to the public or what is that like to even attend Innovation Week? Absolutely, it's very cool. Well, the Innovation Week itself is innovative in the <laughs> sense that instead of it being like a typical event where you have to physically go someplace, it's a combination of physical and virtual events. Mm -hmm. So you would go to a website and that uh, website would be inlandempire.innovationweeks.com. I know you'll provide your viewers with uh, an ability to get that information at the end. But you'd go to that website, you'd register, and uh, you'd have an opportunity to say, number one, are you or are you not an innovator? You don't have to be. You can be just somebody who's interested in innovation, or perhaps somebody who needs to find somebody innovative to help with your business or personal issues. And then you'd be presented with a list of what we call tracks. Tracks are simply these groupings of, uh, of uh, events that a person that's knowledgeable on a particular subject has prepared for anyone in the community to be able to view. And uh, to the question of cost, there's no cost whatsoever. So these, these events are organized to make it so that people can either sit in a room or can watch online in a mm -hmm. video conference. Information that's actually going to help them see around them what's really being done that's so remarkable. I was uh, reminding myself of a conversation that you and I just had, I think, uh, last week where we were just discovering new innovative businesses right here in Riverside mm -hmm. and realizing they're sort of popping up under our nose. Mm -hmm. So that's the Innovation Week, a tool for the people within the Inland Empire to come together and see innovation. Truly, and I think that that is one of the biggest challenges too, is just trying to get on the same page, if you will, trying to figure out who's doing what and what is effective and what is not effective, especially in regards to innovation. And so um, you talked about this a little bit earlier, but this whole idea of change um, and how that relates to you being a futurist. And I heard a term the other day called hyperchange. So can you just define what that is and why, just maybe describe why it's so important? Well, it's a, it's a term that I've coined, uh, and I would say that hyperchange, if you take those two words and you separate them, hyper means extraordinary, high, greater than you would sort of expect, and change we certainly understand where things are different. We are entering a time in human history where the amount and degree of change uh, is going to simply be greater than any other time that we've experienced. And uh, as a way of explaining that, if you think about the industrial revolutions, those are those times in recent history where a lot of changes occurred for people. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've been having change for millions and millions of years. Some of it was experienced by the dinosaurs when a big uh, meteor <laughs> hit the planet and their world changed. But from the perspective of human beings, uh, in around the 1750, 1760, there was an industrial revolution. Then about 100 years later, there was another industrial revolution. And about 100 years later, there was yet another one in around the 1960s. And now we're yet into another industrial revolution 
which is, uh, is going to propel us into a world of flying cars. So hyperchange is that circumstance where things are evolving so quickly that as wonderful as some of those changes might be collectively, they're very difficult to tolerate. Mm-hmm. So how do you think this hyperchange will affect the public sector? Well, uh, I would like to say all in a good way, but I would say that perhaps uh, there's some immediate things that we should be thinking about. Um, one of the first things is, is that as we start to see more artificial intelligence, robotics, software, and process automation, we have the potential of losing a lot of jobs. And mm-hmm. uh, I know because you were part of the uh, Future of Cities conference, you remembered hearing that some were in the neighborhood of 58 to 63 percent of the jobs in the Inland Empire might churn in the next 20 years. I know people sort of push back and they say, well, that won't really be the total number of jobs lost. Let's just say that people have to change. That's an extraordinarily large percentage. Mm -hmm. And what would certainly happen if you had 50% or more of the people in the Inland Empire have to change jobs, um, there'd be some discomfort with that. Mm -hmm. I think another thing that we would fully expect is a lot more density in terms of population. I think that uh, we would fully expect to see uh, uh, self-driving cars, we would fully expect to see uh, different kinds of health care. And we already know that we're experiencing a lot of the homelessness. Mm-hmm. You can't hardly read the, the newspaper and not read about some of the great challenges that people in uh, uh, L.A. have. And on that subject, let me just mention, um, as much as it is that it's very visible and talked about in uh, Los Angeles, it's equally concerning in every community in uh, the, in the uh, Southern California area because a lot of cities kind of do a better job of hiding home homelessness, but that's one of those big hyper-change issues where we might see a tremendous number of people on the side of the road trying to exist. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like a lot of, or many of the results of hyper-change are things that the public sector is often tasked to tackle as well. Well, I certainly think that's the case, and I think, unfortunately, most of us know that when we see that the siding on our house is uh, peeling, mm-hmm. we can see it visually, we can decide whether it's something we want to fix ourselves or hire a repairman. When we see that potentially we've got a funny little rash on our skin, we can be proactive and go to the doctor. Mm-hmm. The challenge for hyperchange is that the volume of it and the nature of it is so consequential that it will happen upon many people in ways that they have no way to prepare for. Mm-hmm. So that's my big concern. Uh, is that not that people can't figure it out, but uh, they won't be able to figure it out before it causes some mm-hmm. frustration. Mm-hmm. So we, I think we see a, a variety of other organizations planning for the future, whether that be military or corporations. Um, so why do governments not always do the same thing? It's an excellent question. Why do governments not uh, uh, sort of plan with, plan for, or deal with the future? Well, the good news is some do. But they typically tend to be the bigger governments, the ones that have a little bit better budgets and maybe have already encountered a series of issues that would cause them to realize it's better to look into the future than ignore it. Uh, The future is kind of a funny thing. It doesn't really uh, go away, but sometimes you can procrastinate. (laughs) And big cities have come to learn that you better have a planning process that really does look out in the future in an affirmative way. Many, many medium-sized and smaller-sized cities it's never occurred to them to do that, to mm-hmm. formalize the process of looking at the future, to budget for looking at the future. And uh, they're going to start to feel some of that same uh, pain that maybe a young child experiences when they first touch the stove and they're reminded 
ouch, I don't want to do that again. Mm-hmm. So uh, as, as governments now start to be more aware of the pain that comes from not um, looking at the future, I think they'll do more of it. Mm-hmm. And I would add that I think another maybe um, hurdle that smaller governments with smaller budgets have is just, I mean, the resources aspect of it. You don't have enough resources or the people or the capacity even to be able to plan for future environments, if you will. And so that kind of leads me to my next question. Um, What do you think will happen to governments that will do little or poor future planning? The simple answer is they're going to get surprised. And as you may recall, when you're four years of age, a surprise could be a pony <laughs> under the Christmas tree. But as you're probably a little bit older now, most of the surprises that happen when you're adult are not as welcome. So the number one thing that's going to happen to governments that don't do the appropriate amount of future research and planning is they're going to be surprised. And that surprise is going to manifest itself in a couple different ways. The first of which is a strain on resources. So to the extent that budgeting anticipates how much money to spend per capita or per acre mm-hmm. or per building, if all of a sudden there's a lot more people, a lot less people, a lot less buildings, a lot more cost, it, the budgets don't necessarily change, mm-hmm. right? So you're dealing with your projections not being as you thought. The second thing that government's going to have to deal with is you're going to have to deal with stress. And stress is very, very challenging because it's going to show up in a couple different ways. The first of which is going to stress the actual businesses that provide tax base. So if you're a city and you uh, charge uh, for uh, a um, a variety of different taxes, it could be a sales tax, it could be a use tax, there's lots of different ways that you can get tax dollars. If the people that are paying you the money that you need to actually operate are under stress because of a rapidly changing future, your revenue is going to be uh, at risk. The second thing is, is that people that are stressed are more difficult to govern. They're less <laughs> accepting of potholes. They're less accepting of social unrest. They're less accepting of of uh, the challenges that we sometimes see manifest in t- terms of people with social disobedience. So that very nature of people being more difficult to govern, that translates not only into uh, a more unruly population, but it also translates into unintended cost for the cities. Mm-hmm. I think that what you just said, it's the disconnect um, between planning and then what's actually happening. And so the disconnect of future planning and then what's actually currently happening. And so your example of the lack of planning and the lack of proper budgeting and how that really is very much intertwined with one another, I haven't really thought of that before. Um, so what would you say, moving forward then, are five things that governments can do to adapt to hyperchange? Well, that's an excellent question. I would say the first is to not expect hyperchange to go away. Hyperchange is the future. It's what we'll expect to always be the case and will only increase. So that means that in order to deal with hyperchange, you got to get ahead of the game. You have to establish a strategy that says change is coming. It's part of every day. Don't expect for it to go away. The second is to think big. There's a city in Europe that's actually designing a completely new subsidy. They're going to spend a billion dollars on it, and they're going to design every last component from scratch. They're not going to try to make incremental changes. They're going to say, we know that we have to do something different. We're going to design the city 100% from new. That's big thought. Mm -hmm. And to do something like that probably is not the way that most 
cities uh, think about things. Mm -hmm. The third is to take risks. Whenever we might imagine that there's a way that we can do something where everyone's going to be happy, where it's all likely to work out, where uh, there's no possibility of getting in trouble or in otherwise uh, be in a situation where it's all good, those are the things which are most likely to create exactly the other uh, circumstance you don't want in hyperchange, which is a bad outcome. Mm -hmm. So the more intelligent risks that you can uh, take, the more likely you are to come up with solutions uh, and to truly be innovative. I would say the fourth thing is for government to begin to behave like a business. To think about profit as being an essential component of survival. If a business has made profit in the past and has a bad year, mm -hmm. it has resources to draw upon to get it through a tough year. If a government has a bad year and it has no resources to draw upon, government may not be able to operate properly. So an example of that would be that today we have governments that are being attacked by ransomware uh, providers and their entire infrastructure is being brought down because of the hyperchange associated with attackers over the internet. And some cities are actually being unable to provide the normal services that anyone would expect. 911, closing of real estate, all those kinds of things because they don't have any extra resources. So I believe that government actually has to make a profit. I'm distorting the word a little bit because I don't mean to say uh, profit is in um, taking advantage of the charter, but ultimately to be in a place where they store up resources for those tougher years. And the fifth thing, Rachel, I think is for government to act as a communicator and to facilitate dialogue in the different members of the community that it governs. Mm -hmm. People and businesses are bound to be stressed in a hyperchange future and government is in a unique position to be able to bring those people together. Remember those old town halls, the kind of things that we hardly ever do anymore? Everybody's on the <laughs> internet, everybody's on their phone. Mm -hmm. Ima imagine how remarkable it would be if government made it easy for people to see each other in a room, if government actually engaged and brought businesses together to talk about new and creative solutions, if government was to take those people in community that are least able to take care of themselves and made them more visible to the rest of the community. So I think that the most important thing is this fifth one where government actually acts as an advocate for communication. <laughs> So now, Mark, as a futurist, can you give us some predictions of what the future of Southern California looks like? I think so. I think that we're going to see, number one, some uh, significant adversity that is fueled by social unrest. Uh, we're already seeing it build up, and in different parts of the world, it's much more common to see uh, physical violence. I think we're going to see in Southern California because of a, uh, a lack of agreement on exactly how community is supposed to work, we're going to see a lot of density. California today, compared to many places in the world, is very spread out. But because it's such a wonderful place to live, I think we're going to see that California, uh, Southern California in particular, is going to see new kinds of housing, uh, many more roads, and blending of areas which have typically stood apart. As an example, San Diego, Inland Empire and Los Angeles are all relatively close to each other, mm -hmm. but imagine the population of those areas growing significantly to where they kind of blur together and start to 
function as one area, but with perhaps not as much planning. So I think that California is going to have to anticipate that density is going to be a factor uh, in its future. And I think that uh, possibly heat. Uh, if you look at what's actually uh, going on right now, this is the hottest year on record uh, that we actually know uh, for the Southern California area. And if we tend to have uh, uh, additional um, heat come because of global warming or other kinds of issues, uh, we might be dealing with a, a, a environment which where heat becomes really an important thing. Wow. So um, the three things that I heard you talk about was social unrest, um, density, and then heat. So those are you think those are the three predictions that you have for Southern California moving forward? Those are those are three predictions that I think are very likely. Okay. So um, moving forward, uh, how can our listeners get in contact with you if they're interested to reach out and learn more about um, your perspectives and just maybe your insight that you give um, to future predictions? Well, the first is they can go to the Innovation Week website, uh, and uh, that would be uh, www.innovationweeks that's with an S at the end dot com. The second would be to contact me directly and that would be www.markcofano.com and the third would be to call me 949-558-2222 Perfect. Well thank you so much for taking the time to be on our podcast today and um, we really appreciate um, just your insight and perspective. I think that one of my biggest takeaways is just how the motivation behind why change and why planning for change is really important and worth noting, especially in the public sector and from that public sector um, perspective. Um, So thank you so much. Do you have any final remarks before we sign off? I do. The last thing that I'd like to suggest is that everything I um, am doing as a futurist is focused on helping people choose a better future for themselves. And ultimately remember that the future you choose is much better than one that's chosen for you. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you, Rachel. The Western Riverside Council of Governments, also known as WRCOG, exists to unify the Western Riverside County so that it can speak with a collective voice on important issues that affect its members. For more information on WRCOG and the COGCAST, please visit us at www.wrcog.us.